Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 53. Well, this chapter flows directly out of the end of Alma, chapter 52. We've just read of a great victory where Moroni, Teancum, and Lehi all worked together to retake the city of Mulek. In so doing, they slew the Lamanite leader of the city of Mulek, a Zoramite named Jacob. All of those Lamanites who were willing to lay down their weapons of war, as we learned at the end of the previous chapter, were allowed to enter into a covenant of peace and were allowed to go free. But those who were not were taken as prisoners. And uh, we can guess, after having read commentary from Hugh Nibley on this, that many of those prisoners would have been the more bitter Zoramites. We read that so many prisoners were taken, or we read that so many prisoners were taken that they actually exceeded the numbers of those who had been slain. So now as we begin Alma chapter 53, we'll see how that story continues and how it is that these prisoners are employed to build up the city bountiful. We'll also see here that Lehi takes command of the city of Mulek, so we'll read of that. In this chapter, our attention will turn to a much-loved group that lives within the Nephite nation, and that's the people of Ammon. Their story will be told very briefly uh, in this chapter. We'll find that they are pushed right to the brink. They actually want to violate the covenant that they made so dramatically in Alma chapter 24 so that they might help the Nephites in their fight. Uh, However, Helaman forbids them to do this. Helaman and his brethren do. And uh, we see what the result of that is, that their sons come forth and are willing to fight since they did not enter into this covenant. A retelling of this will be provided, of course, by Helaman in uh, Alma chapter 56, and that extends through Alma chapter 58, Helaman's letter to Moroni that describes um, his efforts with these stripling warriors as they fight against the Lamanites and, as mentioned previously, as they retake the city of Antipara, and they use methods of decoy as well. So this particular thing might be the most memorable feature, actually, of Alma chapter 53, once we turn to the people of Ammon and the leadership of Helaman. In fact, here's some commentary from Ogden and Skinner, where they say that Alma chapters 53 through 57 are a testimony to the power and influence on young people of righteous family life. And so, again, it's because the story of these sons of the people of Ammon is going to be told here at the end of chapter 53, And then also these epistles, particularly in uh, Alma 56 and 57, will tell their story. Ogden and Skinner continue by saying the 2,000 stripling warriors, and stripling, by the way, means young, had decided to fight for liberty for the sake of their families, inasmuch as their fathers had made a covenant not to take up arms. Thus the sons covenanted to fight in order to protect the covenant of their fathers not to fight, which had God's approval. 
Helaman was their commander and later explained the source of their courage, strength, and commitment. How they never had fought, yet they did not fear death, and they did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their own lives. Yea, they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they rehearsed unto me the words of their mothers, saying, We did not doubt, our mothers knew it. Now that will come from Alma chapter 56, verses 47 through 48, as Helaman is retelling the story to Moroni. Thus we see that there is hardly a force for good in society comparable to a righteous home. It is the foundation of a strong, courageous, moral, just, and free society. Well, this is a slightly shorter chapter with 23 verses compared to the chapters that have been longer that we've read so far. Verse 1 will provide continuity from the previous chapter where we'll find that the Lamanite prisoners that have just been taken up are employed to bury the dead after this war has ended in this retaking of the city of Mulek. Then in verse 2, we find that Lehi is the one that will take command of the city of Mulek. And then we'll see in verses 3 through 7 that the Lamanite prisoners build fortifications around Bountiful. And at this time, Moroni prepares again for war. Then in verses 8 and 9, we can see that the Lamanites uh, have gained a number of cities on the West Sea South. And this, as we might guess, is due to internal Nephite descent and iniquity that has taken place among themselves. So once again, this pattern continues where we've come to the end of a Nephite victory and we have the possibility for continued victory, but this is sullied by internal dissent. So we'll read of that here. Now in this section in verses 10 through 15, this is where attention turns to these people who we, we love so much and have so many fond memories of, uh, the people of Ammon. Uh, they figure back into the story. It wasn't too many chapters ago that we knew that they gave up the land of Jershon so that it could be inhabited by those who were ready to fight the Lamanites who came in to that region. Of course, that those were those who were led by the Zoramites, Zem, Zarahemna. Uh, and so now we're hearing about the people of Ammon again, and here things have just come to the point where they, they really want to fight. They want to help the Nephites uh, during this time of great peril. And so, in fact, they want to break their oath so that they can fight, but we'll see here that Helaman really forbids this. In fact, verse 14 will tell us that the people of Ammon, in their desire to do this thing, were overpowered by the persuasions of Helaman and his brethren, uh, so that they would not break the oath which they had made. The solution that's proposed instead, which we will read of in the final verses of this chapter, extending from verses 16 through 23, is that the sons of these people of Ammon, since they never took such an oath, uh, that they could fight. And we find that Helaman will become their leader. So they're known as the 2,000 stripling soldiers. Verse 18 will tell us that there were 2,000 of these young men and that they uh, did not enter into the same covenant that their fathers did in Alma chapter 24. And so instead, they, they entered into a new covenant. And we read about that in verse 17, that they uh, very specifically entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites and to protect the land unto the laying down of their lives. This will lead us, of course, into some of the most miraculous and inspiring stories that are found in the Book of Mormon. And we'll read about those later as uh, we read Helaman's epistle to Moroni. But we do see here, 
in Alma chapter 53 and verse 20, that they were all young men and they were exceedingly valiant for courage and also for strength and activity. Uh, Behold, this was not all. They were men who were true at all times in whatsoever thing they were entrusted. Um, So, of course, we'll come back to that. Uh, But these are young men of the very highest caliber. And they are described in verse 22 again as 2,000 stripling soldiers. So let's move now back to verse 1 for a reading where we'll return to uh, the end of this war, this retaking of the city of Mulek. And of course, uh, we'll be able to come back to the story of these 2,000 stripling warriors. A a new piece of interest for us has been opened up in this chapter. So verse 1, And it came to pass that they did set guards over the prisoners of the Lamanites. Now remember, the they here is the victorious Nephites, led by Moroni. And uh, Teancum is the one who led Jacob and these Lamanite armies out of the city of Mulek. Then they were attacked by uh, Lehi. And so they are these victorious Nephites. They did set guards over the prisoners of the Lamanites. Again, who are these prisoners? And and their numbers are are vast. We get the sense for that at the end of the previous chapter. Uh, they, They were those who were most bitter and who would not lay down their weapons of war. So these Nephites, it says, did compel them to go forth and bury their dead, yea, and also the dead of the Nephites who were slain. And Moroni placed men over them to guard them while they should perform their labors. So that's what's necessary. There are so many prisoners now that they have to be guarded carefully and watched over carefully so that they don't defect, and this will be a continual problem as we move through the narrative. Uh, But they're employed to do different things, and here uh, they're employed to bury the dead. Verse 2, And Moroni went to the city of Mulek with Lehi, and took command of the city, and gave it unto Lehi. Now behold, this Lehi was a man who had been with Moroni in the more part of all his battles, And he was a man like unto Moroni, and they rejoiced in each other's safety, yea, they were beloved by each other, and also beloved by all the people of Nephi. Well, we can guess that Moroni was remarkable simply because of his tactical genius, and also his own strength in battle was was undoubtedly formidable. So when we read that Lehi was a man like unto Moroni, we can imagine that he shared those kinds of traits. However, beyond this, we can guess that Lehi would have shared Moroni's amazing uh, fidelity to the concept of liberty and freedom and and his God-fearing nature and his disposition, even in the heat of battle, to spare life whenever possible. So we can guess that uh, Lehi would have shared those characteristics of well as well, because those are probably the most notable characteristics of Moroni. Now returning to these prisoners, we'll see how they're employed in a new and creative way by Moroni. And it came to pass that after the Lamanites had finished burying their dead, and also the dead of the Nephites, they were marched back into the land bountiful. And Teancum, by the orders of Moroni, caused that they should commence laboring in digging a ditch about the land, or the city bountiful. So fortification will now continue, and bountiful is is, um, going to be built up. And he caused that they should build a breastwork of timbers upon the inner bank of the ditch. And they cast up dirt out of the ditch against the breastwork of timbers. And thus they did cause the Lamanites to labor until they had encircled the city of Bountiful round about with a strong wall of timbers and earth to an exceeding height. And this city became an exceeding stronghold ever after. And in this city they did guard the prisoners of the Lamanites. 
yea, even within a wall which they had caused them to build with their own hands. So there's some irony there that Mormon is pointing out. Now Moroni was compelled to cause the Lamanites to labor because it was easy to guard them while at their labor. And he desired all his forces when he should make an attack upon the Lamanites. There's kind of a universal principle that's revealed there when we see that these prisoners are uh, more manageable when they are being put to work. Uh, Here's some commentary from President Gordon B. Hinckley. Since this focus on fortifications gives us yet one more example or one more opportunity to look at the spiritual applications of building up fortifications in our own lives. So he says, to avoid temptations, be like Captain Moroni of old. Set up fortifications to strengthen your places of weakness. Instead of building walls of timbers and dirt to protect a vulnerable city, build fortifications in the form of personal ground rules to protect your priceless virtue. One key fortification you can build is to decide now, before you face a challenge, where to draw the line. Our prophet teaches that if we decide now not to watch inappropriate media, but instead to walk away, the challenge is behind us. Now, I've misspoken. Um, that is not a quote from President Hinckley. That's just a reference to President Hinckley's counsel at the end of this uh, section, which is actually from David E. Sorensen in a wonderful general conference talk called You Can't Pet a Rattlesnake. Uh, now this from President Henry B. Eyring. As the forces around us increase in intensity, whatever spiritual strength was once sufficient will not be enough. And whatever growth in spiritual strength we once thought was possible greater growth will be made available to us. Both the need for spiritual strength and the opportunity to acquire it will increase at rates which we underestimate at our peril. Verse 6, And it came to pass that Moroni had thus gained a victory over one of the greatest of the armies of the Lamanites, and had obtained possession of the city of Mulek, which was one of the strongest holds of the Lamanites in the land of Nephi, and thus he had also built a stronghold to retain his prisoners. So again, this feels somewhat like a consolation prize to us, I think, here, because it's um, so sad overall that the Lamanites are into the Nephite nation at all and that they uh, have regained these cities that they have. So we're happy about this victory, but we don't quite have that same pure feeling uh, that, that, that we had, for example, in Alma chapter 49, when uh, Amalickiah sent his Lamanite troops into the Nephite nation and they were simply not able to do anything against the fortified city of Ammonihah, and then how they fell as they tried to attack the fortified city of Noah. So this is still a good moment in verse 6, but again, it's a slightly different context. Verse 7, And it came to pass that he did no more attempt a battle with the Lamanites in that year, but he did employ his men in preparing for war, yea, and in making fortifications to guard against the Lamanites, yea, and also delivering their women and their children from famine and affliction and providing food for their families. So there's some sense here of resolution and recovery. Uh, So things are taking a turn for the better as the narrative is going on here. Now, as we come into verse 8, we'll see that uh, this is a perfect time uh, for Mormon to illustrate this terrible cycle that keeps taking place where dissension enters among the Nephites, and so then they're no longer impervious to attack. Um, before we move into that, however, I want to read this from John Welch uh, in a work that, uh, that um, we've gone to several times in the past called Law and War in the Book of Mormon. And here Welch will talk a little bit more about these prisoners that Moroni has taken. 
When the Nephites took prisoners, they made good but not excessive use of them. Moroni had Lamanite prisoners both bury those slain in battle and fortify the city bountiful, so that it became a suitable stronghold to retain prisoners. By doing so, he not only freed up Nephite troops for battle, but he also made guarding the prisoners easier. If prisoners did attempt to escape or revolt, they were slain. Now that wasn't mentioned in this chapter, but it is mentioned later in Alma chapter 57 that that's the way these prisoners were dealt with if they did revolt. Prisoners were not sought after, however, as a cheap form of slave labor. Instead, Nephites generally avoided taking prisoners by allowing captured troops to go free if they yielded up their weapons and covenanted not to fight again. Often they allowed prisoners to go free if they made a similar promise. Thus Moroni allowed Zarahemna and his men to go free when they agreed to such conditions out of desperation, after having previously refused to enter into a covenant of peace, which they knew that they would break. We read about that in Alma chapter 44, verse 8. The people of Morianton were allowed to return to their lands upon covenanting to keep the peace, which we read of in Alma chapter 50. Such covenants were to be taken seriously. After defeating a Lamanite army, Moroni and Pehoran caused those who had not been slain to enter into a covenant that they would no more take up their weapons of war against the Nephites. And when they had entered into this covenant, they sent them to dwell with the people of Ammon, and they were in number about 4,000 who had not been slain. Moroni and Pehoran sent 4,000 Lamanite soldiers who had given nothing more than their word to live with the defenseless Ammonites. Eventually, all remaining prisoners were allowed to join the people of Ammon, and they began to labor exceedingly, tilling the ground, raising all manner of grain and flocks and herds of every kind, and thus were the Nephites relieved from a great burden, yea, insomuch that they were relieved from all the prisoners of the Lamanites. So that's kind of where we'll see the ultimate resolution of this prisoner problem, and that will come uh, in Alma chapter 62, and it's verse 29 of Alma chapter 62 that Welch is quoting from there. Now that we've kind of come to this point of resolution for the Nephites, the dead have been buried, Bountiful has been built up, and Moroni waits to go to war, and he is protecting the people and nourishing those who are suffering. That's kind of what we read in verse 7. Now we'll come back uh, and, and look at what the Lamanites are doing for a moment in verses 8 and 9. And now it came to pass that the armies of the Lamanites on the West Sea South, while in the absence of Moroni on account of some intrigue amongst the Nephites, which caused dissensions amongst them, had gained some ground over the Nephites, yea, insomuch that they had obtained possession of a number of their cities in that part of the land. And thus, and here is Mormon's opportunity to comment on this, because of iniquity amongst themselves, yea, because of dissensions and intrigue amongst themselves, they were placed in the most dangerous circumstances. From this commentary, Mormon, I think, is reminding us that the Nephites' greatest enemy really was themselves, and dissensions from within uh, caused their greatest problems. Um, Hugh Nibley once said in his book, Since Camorra, so it was a blessing to the Nephites after all to have the Lamanites on their doorstep to stir them up to remembrance. Happy is the man whom God correcteth, it says in Job chapter 5, verse 17. No matter how wicked and ferocious and depraved the Lamanites might be, and they were that, no matter by how much they outnumbered the Nephites, darkly closing in on all sides, 
No matter how insidiously they spied and intrigued and infiltrated and hatched their diabolical plots and breathed their bloody threats and pushed their formidable preparations for all-out war, they were not the Nephite problem. They were merely kept there to remind the Nephites of their real problem, which was to walk uprightly before the Lord. Here's more commentary that's a reflection on this editorializing from Mormon in verse 9, where he talks about because of iniquity amongst themselves, they find themselves in such dangerous circumstances. And this commentary is from Douglas Bassett. He'll actually quote from Hugh Nibley uh, um, from, the, from the same quote that I just read, so we'll, we'll hear some of that again. But he says, Mormon views the conflict between the Nephites and Lamanites from a spiritual context. There is no mention here of the superior military strength of the Lamanites as a reason for their advantage in battle, but it comes from the dissension among the Nephites. This message is consistent throughout the Book of Mormon. The Lord defended the Nephites, or his covenant people, when they were righteous. Hugh Nibley has observed, the Lamanites were not the Nephite problem. They were merely kept there to remind the Nephites of their real problem, which was to walk uprightly before the Lord. Now, as we come to verse 10, the remainder of this chapter will turn our attention to this remarkable new development, uh, this thing that happens with the sons of the children of Ammon. So verse 10, And now behold, I have somewhat to say concerning the people of Ammon, who in the beginning were Lamanites, but by Ammon and his brethren, or rather by the power and word of God, they had been converted unto the Lord. And they had been brought down into the land of Zarahemla and had ever since been protected by the Nephites. Well, that verse, of course, is a short summary of what we know and what we read earlier in the book of Alma and how when they came into the land of Zarahemla, they uh, were, were given the land of Jershon. And it's that, that, that is the way in which they were protected by the Nephites. And we know how dramatically they did embrace the power of the word of God and how it was that they were converted and how there was a time in the land of Nephi, and in the Lamanite kingdom, where the gospel was being preached to the heads of state, the Lamanite king himself, the father of Lamoni, was converted. Verse 11, And because of their oath, they had been kept, and that oath, of course, was recorded in Alma chapter 24, when these people of Ammon, or back then they were called the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they buried their swords and covenanted to never fight again, and they made good on that by actually submitting themselves to their enemies, whom they referred to in that instance as their brethren. So, And because of their oath, they had been kept from taking up arms against their brethren, for they had taken an oath that they never would shed blood more. I think the use of the word brethren is very interesting there. And according to their oath, they would have perished, yea, they would have suffered themselves to have fallen into the hands of their brethren had it not been for the pity and the exceeding love which Ammon and his brethren had had for them. And for this cause they were brought down into the land of Zarahemla, for they ever had been protected by the Nephites. But, here we come to this point of desperation, it came to pass that when they saw the danger and the many afflictions and tribulations which the Nephites bore for them, they were moved with compassion and were desirous to take up arms in the defense of their country. These same people proved their fidelity to their oath by not fighting when they were personally attacked, but they actually submitted and were slain uh, because they, uh, they, they submitted to the attacking Lamanites uh, and they, they had buried their swords and in the act of praising God, uh, many were slain. So they certainly have shown fidelity to this covenant. But in this instance, their love for their Nephite brethren is so great 
and they're so aware of the afflictions and tribulations that have come upon the Nephites that they really, in this instance, really want to take up arms and defend them. Elder Richard G. Scott spoke of this incident by saying the Nephites protected the people of Ammon for many years, but eventually the Nephite army began to wear down, and reinforcements were gravely needed. The people of Ammon were at a critical moment of their spiritual lives. They had been true to their covenant never to take up arms, but they understood that fathers are responsible to provide protection for their families. That need seemed great enough to merit consideration of breaking their covenant. Now we'll find in verse 14 that Helaman and his brethren will do all they can to prevent the people of Ammon from breaking this covenant. But behold, as they were about to take their weapons of war, they were overpowered by the persuasions of Helaman and his brethren, for they were about to break the oath which they had made. And Helaman feared lest by doing so they should lose their souls. Therefore all those who had entered into this covenant were compelled to behold their brethren wade through their afflictions in their dangerous circumstances at this time. So now we discover that a compromise is struck. Uh, these people will not break their oath. They will not take up arms. And Helaman works very hard to make sure that this does not happen. But instead, something else takes place. These great people, in a very scripturally symbolic act, offer up their sons. So in verse 16, But behold, it came to pass that they had many sons who had not entered into a covenant that they would not take their weapons of war to defend themselves against their enemies. Therefore they did assemble themselves together at this time, as many as were able to take up arms, and they called themselves Nephites. So that is the workaround in this case. These Ammonites had sons that they could offer up. Again, uh, very symbolic, and uh, we can also think about modern-day sons who are sent uh, as missionaries, and of course daughters as well, who are sent into the world as missionaries by willing parents who want to stay true to their covenants. From this same talk that I had quoted from just a few moments ago from Elder Richard G. Scott, which, by the way, was called Personal Strength Through the Atonement, he also said, Their wise priesthood leader, Helaman, knew that breaking a covenant with the Lord is never justified. Elder D. Todd Christofferson has written, A covenant is an agreement between God and man. In these divine agreements, God binds himself to sustain, sanctify, and exalt us in return for our commitment to serve him and keep his commandments. Keeping covenants produces the faith necessary to persevere and to do all things that are expedient in the Lord. Our willingness to take upon us the name of Christ and keep his covenants requires a degree of faith, but as we honor our covenants, that faith expands. Verse 17, And they entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites. So this seems much like the covenant that uh, Moroni made in Alma chapter 46 uh, that was embodied by the title of liberty, and now this covenant is being extended to these sons of the people of Ammon. So everyone wins here. The uh, people of Ammon are able to keep their very important covenant, and now their sons are able to still help in this cause, and they enter into a different covenant. So uh, living true to this covenant will look, or living true to covenants generally will look different for the people of Ammon than it will their sons. So again, verse 17, and they entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites, yea, to protect the land unto the laying down of their lives, yea, even they covenanted that they never would give up their liberty but they would fight in all cases to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondage. So once again, we're just finding that liberty is the critical thing here. 
and that uh, that is what's at stake at all times in this fighting. And uh, of course, that concept can be applied more broadly to the war that takes place between good and evil that began before this world was, and that the liberty of man is, is what Lucifer has tried to take from them. Verse 18, Now behold, there were 2,000 of those young men who entered into this covenant and took their weapons of war to defend their country. Uh, The Institute Manual says, Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles shared how we gain power through keeping our covenants. Sometimes we are tempted to let our lives be governed more by convenience than by covenant. It is not always convenient to live gospel standards and stand up for truth and testify of the restoration. But there is no spiritual power in living by convenience. The power comes as we keep our covenants. President Boyd K. Packer explained that keeping covenants keeps us safe. Keep your covenants and you will be safe. Break them and you will not. We are not free to break our covenants and escape the consequences. He said that in a conference report in October of 1990. Verse 19 And now behold, as they never had hitherto been a disadvantage to the Nephites, meaning they as the people of Ammon here, they became now at this period of time also a great support, for they took their weapons of war, and they would that Helaman should be their leader. So these sons of the people of Ammon became a great advantage to the Nephites, and now the people of Ammon more generally are able to contribute to the cause in this great way. And very importantly, we read in verse 19 that Helaman should be their leader. This is the first time that we get the idea that Helaman would participate in battle in this way. Remember, this is the son of Alma, who took the records from Alma, and who bears that responsibility, and bears the responsibility as the leader of the church. So this tells us that times are dire indeed. And it also tells us, interestingly, that Helaman is very capable as a military leader, So he is a a man of many dimensions, as was his father Alma. Verse 20, And they were all young men, and they were exceedingly valiant for courage and also for strength and activity. But behold, this was not all. They were men who were true at all times and whatsoever things they were entrusted. To that last point, President Dallin H. Oaks has said, Men and women who have made covenants to serve the Lord, are you being true to the faith? Do you have the faith and continuing commitment to demonstrate the principles of the gospel in your own lives consistently? You have served well, but do you, like the pioneers, have the courage and consistency to be true to the faith and endure to the end? Verse 21, Yea, they were men, meaning these young men, of truth and soberness, for they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before him. Very beautifully later in Helaman's epistle, we'll find who they were taught by, particularly by their mothers. There's quite a lot of commentary available on this particular verse. First, this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. The stripling warriors who also went to battle, and by the way, warriors is not the word that's used in this uh, this chapter. It'll be used later. It's stripling soldiers that's used here. But the stripling warriors who went to battle in place of their fathers were young men of righteousness. They were committed to defending their country. They were fearless in the face of death and courageous in battle. We'll see evidence of all of this later. God rewarded their faith with amazing strength and protection. Not one of them died in battle. This is not always the case with righteous young men in military service. Sometimes even the righteous die in the Lord. 
But in the case of these young men, and by the way, die in the Lord is a phrase that's used in Doctrine and Covenants, section 63, verse 49. But in the case of these young men, divine protection was given that preserved their mortal lives in battle. They exemplified the type of manhood that all of God's sons should emulate and stood as a witness to the Nephite nation that God would deliver them if they were faithful. Elder Gary Stevenson has written, There will be times when you will have to demonstrate your righteous courage in plain view of your peers, the consequence of which may be ridicule and embarrassment. Additionally, skirmishes with the adversary will also be fought on a silent, solitary battlefield in front of a screen. Technology with its substantial benefits also brings challenges not faced by generations before you. Elder N. Eldon Tanner once wrote, Often you will experience much criticism and ridicule, even by those who believe as you do, even though they may respect you for doing right. But remember that the Savior himself was tormented, ridiculed, spat upon, and finally crucified because he would not waver in his conviction. Now, I want to read this entry from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual, which uh, the heading of which says, Being Good Examples in Military Service. So we're applying this uh, description of these remarkable sons, of the people of Ammon, these stripling soldiers, as they are described in verses 20 and 21. In modern times, the First Presidency has given the following counsel to church members in military service. To our young men who go into service, no matter whom they serve or where, we say, live clean, keep the commandments of the Lord, pray to Him constantly to preserve you in truth and righteousness, live as you pray, and then whatever betides you, The Lord will be with you and nothing will happen to you that will not be to the honor and glory of God and to your salvation and exaltation. There will come into your hearts from the living of the pure life you pray for a joy that will pass your powers of expression or understanding. The Lord will be always near you. He will comfort you. You will fill his presence in the hour of your greatest tribulation. He will guard and protect you to the full extent that accords with his his all-wise purpose. Then, When the conflict is over and you return to your homes, having lived the righteous life, how great will be your happiness, whether you be of the victors or of the vanquished, that you have lived as the Lord commanded. You will return so disciplined in righteousness that thereafter all Satan's wiles and stratagems will leave you untouched. Your faith and testimony will be strong beyond breaking. You will be looked up to and revered as having passed through the fiery furnace of trial and temptation and come forth unharmed. Your brethren will look to you for counsel, support, and guidance. You will be the anchors to which thereafter the youth of Zion will moor their faith in man. That's uh, from Heber J. Grant, J. Reuben Clark Jr., and David O. McKay. That was from a conference report in April 1942. So World War II times here. And these great church leaders, what a beautiful statement, are considering those members of the church who could be found on either side of this war. There most certainly were members in Germany at this time that were called upon to fight, for example. It should be noted, I think, that when this letter was written and sent out to these young soldiers who were going into fight, that there were some that were so uh, deeply influenced, undoubtedly by this letter, and who were men of, of this caliber, that the First Presidency is describing that they became great leaders in the church later. Uh, Elder Neil A. Maxwell was one of them, and he talked about being in a foxhole, I believe in Okinawa, and how it was that he was saved. And Elder Maxwell and others were certainly preserved and were able to return home and continue in the service of the Lord in the way 
that this First Presidency uh, message described. Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles discussed what it means to be true at all times. The word true implies commitment, integrity, endurance, and courage. It reminds us of the Book of Mormon's description of the 2,000 young warriors, quote, and of course there that's uh, Alma chapter 53, verses 20 through 21, uh, which I'll reread here that say they were all young men, and they were exceedingly valiant for courage and also for strength and activity. But behold, this was not all. They were men who were true at all times in whatsoever things they were entrusted. Yea, they were men of truth and soberness, for they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before him. In the spirit of that description, I say to our returned missionaries, and again this is President Dallin H. Oaks, men and women who have made covenants to serve the Lord and who have already served him in the great work of proclaiming the gospel and perfecting the saints, are you being true to the faith? Do you have the faith and continuing commitment to demonstrate the principles of the gospel in your own lives consistently? You have served well, but do you, like the pioneers, have the courage and the consistency to be true to the faith, and to endure to the end. Now we come to verse 22, which again reveals this other facet of of Helaman. And now it came to pass that Helaman did march at the head of his 2,000 stripling soldiers to the support of the people in the borders of the land on the south by the West Sea. So as it was suggested earlier, I think by Daniel Ludlow in a previous chapter, we can see that Helaman and his stripling soldiers are fighting a battle on the west side of the southern borders of the Nephite, uh, the Nephite nation. So the West Sea as opposed to the East Sea, where uh, much of the, the activity we've read of already has taken place. We will uh, read later this amazing phrase that Helaman relates uh, when he writes to Moroni, and this is related in Alma chapter 56, we'll, we'll later see that these 2,000 young warriors were taught well by their mothers. And here's something from Julie B. Beck before we actually come to that in Alma chapter 56. We can consider this. Uh, she says, A well-taught friend told me that he did not learn anything at church that he had not already learned at home. His parents used family scripture study, prayer, family home evening, meal times, and other gatherings to teach. Think of the power of our future missionary force if mothers considered their homes as a pre-missionary training center. Then the doctrines of the gospel taught in the MTC would be a review and not a revelation. So that uh, is a great thought by Sister Beck and of course would apply well to that phrase, they did not doubt their mothers knew it, that will come upon in Alma chapter 56. Well now here's the final verse in this chapter which says that, And thus ended the twenty and eighth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. Well, with that, we'll look forward later to resuming, or in other words, we'll look forward to a retelling of this um, this story of these 2,000 stripling soldiers, these sons of Helaman, or these sons of the people of Ammon. So we'll get that retelling later, and so we'll, we have that to look forward to. And then we're about to move into Alma chapter 54, where we'll come back to uh, what it is that Amoron decides to do in response to the, 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 um, the taking of the city of Mulek and the taking of so many Lamanite prisoners. So we'll kind of come into that and we'll see the negotiation that takes place between Moroni and Amoron in that instance. So for now, this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 53.
Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.